Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. This goes out every Thursday on our YouTube channel. Just go to your search engine and type in Switzer Financial Group in YouTube and wacko, you'll see us there. On tonight's show, Margaret Lomas, I call her the Princess of Property, gives us a lesson on investing in property, mistakes you might make and how to avoid it, and then she actually names some hot spots where you should think about if you're in the game to buy a property investment. Then Dr. Carl Mallon tells us why climate change could kill your potential gain on your seaside property. And finally, economist Richard Gibbs from Urbis explains why special places could have an enormous impact on the value of a property that you currently own or one that you might be planning to buy. And without any further ado, let's catch up with Margaret Lomas from destiny.com.au. Joining me on the program is Margaret Lomas from destiny.com.au. And what Margaret doesn't know about property, you don't need to know. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Margaret, I want to focus on younger people or, or novices to uh, property investments. And I, I'll ask you the question, when people ask you, should I buy property now, either as an investor or as an owner of a property, do you ever say, wait for the cycle to be you know, an advantage to you? Well, yes and no. So whether you're young or old or in between, hmm. it, it, it really comes down to where you're buying. The cycle isn't the same all over Australia, and you know that we've discussed that many times. Mm. And that's never been more evident than it is right now when we see Sydney looking like it's starting to grow again. We see Melbourne plateauing. We see Tasmania and more specifically Hobart probably now going into its extensive plateauing. And there's some talk of Perth now beginning a recovery, while we've got great opportunities in both Adelaide and Brisbane. So whether or not you should buy now depends on where you're going to buy. Mm. But the answer to the question is yes, you absolutely need to think about where that market is in its cycle before you make the decision to buy there. Okay, so if I was a, a person who's thinking about buying an investment property in Sydney at the moment, uh, would you be inclined to say, why don't you hold your horses and just wait to see what happens? The biggest concern I have over the Sydney market at the moment is that the media is reporting a, a wonderful market recovery, when if we do look at the figures, despite the gains, the gains haven't recovered the losses yet. And so we're not actually seeing this boom again, and you can't call it a boom until you get back to where you were before you had the loss. Mm. So that is my big concern over Sydney, one of the reasons that it did plateau and begin to turn around and lose money was because the average property had really become out of reach for the average property investor, which immediately took people out of the market and really affected those demand drivers. Then we saw prices fall, we saw availability of property and the capacity for people to once again afford it. But now if we start to get back to those 2017 prices, 
then we're just going to go back to that same situation where the average person can no longer afford to get into the average property. So I worry about that being the case. And that means that if you choose to buy now as an investor, you're going to still have relatively low yields, which might be fine when you've got low interest rates. But if we see those interest rates turn around at all, that becomes a problem. But then you also don't have a lot of access to growth. And the reason we invest in anything is so that we can get both a good cash flow along the way to keep us in that investment and then good growth so that we can get out at the end with a profit. Hmm. So, Margaret, if you look around the country and you do come from WA in your younger days, um, is this a market that is purely mining sensitive or are we at the start of a new cycle for, for people to think about getting into it before it goes much further? Look, uh, let's just get a little rumour straight that I'm actually not from WA. I'm a born and bred Sydney girl and I lived there for 27 years of my life and then took off to, to Perth. And the fact that I married then a Perth boy and had two children with him and one of my children from my former marriage over there, I guess makes me like probably 50% WA. Okay. Uh, and I'm happy to claim that. I love the place and love Perth. But in terms of the mining influences... At the height of the market, we saw significant mining influences on the property markets. So once property was heating up and when they went into their boom times, we saw mining influences because the ability for people to think that they are going to gain came very much from the wonderful mining um, results that we were getting. But if we think very much about Perth, Perth is still a city that is quite populous, a million people. It's well serviced from an infrastructure point of view. And we're now starting to see a real tightening on those vacancy rates. We had vacancy rates up to about 7%. They're now down sure. under the 2.5% mark. And once mm. vacancy rates get under 3%, we start to see pressure on rentals. Now, the situation that's going to create for investors is that it's going to present an exceptional cash flow argument for them. So we're going to see good rental returns and they're getting up to around the 5% mark now with really low buying prices and a lot of talk about many areas looking like they're going to grow. So to me, that is an option for investors. I think if this is your very first property and you're really reliant on growth in your portfolio, I'm not sure that I would choose Perth just yet. But if you've got a couple of properties in your portfolio and if you can wait a little bit of time for growth, then I think there's some great opportunities in Perth at the moment. Okay, so where do you go if this is your first dabble into property investing? Where are the best places right now on your reckoning? I don't want to sound like a broken record, and I know I've been talking about Brisbane for a long time, and I think what your viewers need to understand about me and when I'm recommending areas is that I'm not thinking about those speculators and those risk takers who are happy to jump into maybe a market that's expensive with low yields because it looks like it's going to have a boom and they will profit from that. I'm talking to the everyday investor who wants to buy a, a nice portfolio of properties that they can sit on for 10 to 15, maybe 20 years, and at the end of that, make a nice profit that will set them up for their retirement. Now, that being the case, the average person is a little bit risk averse, and the mere fact that they decided to purchase in property rather than dabble in the share market is probably a testament to that. 
people see property as being less risky, even though that's a mistake very often with a lot of property types. So by their very nature, property investors tend to be a little risk averse, which means that what they need to see in their portfolio is some steady growth year in, year out and a good cash flow return so that they're not dipping into their pocket every week to pay for things. And if that's what you're after, then you can't ignore the northern suburbs of Brisbane with the big university development. We have a new train line that's going right up into Petrie. It's opening up all of that land north of, say, Caboolture that's beginning to grow up into the Sunshine Coast. And I think it's premature for the Sunshine Coast. But we've got highly affordable properties in the mid-300 range, probably late 300s delivering a 5 to 6% return that does have growth drivers present. And to me, who doesn't want that nice, solid and comfortable investment? Okay. So the suburbs around there, you, you mentioned Petrie. Are there others you'd, you'd uh, look at? Absolutely. I think Kalanga has had a bad rap in terms of it's come from a lower socioeconomic time, but there's been a changing demographic. And North Lakes is another one that I also believe is undervalued for what it represents. The, the last one that I'm really interested in at the moment is uh, Dacobin or Dacobin or however you say it. It's, it's, it's one of those ones that nobody can agree on how it's said. I'm sure the people who live there know. But that area has um, a lot of rural land at the moment that is now being turned into residential land. Now, you have to understand that that means that if you buy there, there's a little bit of land available which will dilute those demand drivers a little bit. But I can see that one as having a really good long-term future simply because it's really close to Sandgate and those lovely coastal suburbs. And in relation to them, it's significantly undervalued. Okay. So let's finish up by giving your uh, hints or your tips to people who are going to be new property investors. What are the things you've got to avoid or the mistakes you should avoid? I think you've really got to be careful about the spruikers because my experience with them, and you know, I was the chair of the Property Investment Professionals of Australia for a long time. I was a founding member and pretty much started the organisation and I'm a board member still. So that's been nearly 14 years now that I've been involved there. And we take complaints from consumers and the biggest complaint that we usually get is that they bought a property from one of the Sprukers. The Spruker was able to present to them a range of wonderful information about this area. And the, the investor did no individual research of their own and they've ended up with what is basically a dud property that they paid too much for, that they can't sell and that they've lost money on. So it is important to become educated in your own right, even if you don't have the time to do so, if for no other reason that you can keep those spruikers honest by knowing as much about or probably more about property investing than they do. So that's the first mistake that people make. The second mistake people make is that because they're new and a little bit nervous, they wanna buy around where they live because they feel that that's the safer option when in fact it's very often the riskier option. Where you live may not be a hotspot. It might have been at some stage, but it probably isn't any longer. It may not present the best return for you, and it might not be right for your own risk profile either. Plus, if you already live there, then you're just putting all of your eggs into that one growth basket. And since we've already established that property grows differently all over Australia, 
if you're in an area that has that stagnates for some time, then your, your investment property is going to stagnate as well. So you've got two properties in that one market. I guess the last thing that I really want to warn investors about is just becoming emotional about that purchase. I always get people write to me and say, how do I pick the best street in an area? Well, you don't really want the best street in an area unless you're going to live there, and then of course you do. But if you're going to invest in an area, the best street usually presents a premium to price, but the entire suburb is exposed to the same growth drivers. So better for you to get into something that you might get a bit more of a bargain on because you don't have everybody aspiring to live in that street, but it's still going to be exposed to the same growth drivers and you're likely to get as much, if not a better, return on your money. Yeah, great advice, Margaret. If people want to know more, go to destiny.com.au. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Thank you. I'm talking to Dr. Carl Morlin, who's uh, Head of Science at Climate Risk, a company that actually will tell us whether our properties are vulnerable to climate change. Thanks for joining us, Carl. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Tell us about Climate Risk as a company. So um, we're basically a software analytics company, and um, we basically provide um, data to um, um, the utilities and government sector via um, an entity called XDI. Um, and we also provide analysis to uh, the public via a system called uh, Climate Valuation. So um, the, these systems have, have grown up in Australia, but we're now getting demand from uh, essentially North America and, um, and in Europe as well. Okay, give us a classic example of how a a residential homeowner might use your services. Okay, so a, um, a the, 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 probably the best use case is for a home buyer mm -hmm. who may come mm -hmm. in and, and essentially they're looking at buying a property. Maybe that's uh, near the coast. Um, maybe that's in a um, you know a forested zone, something like that. And they want to know are there any risks they should be thinking about. Now. Um, we tend to find that the more climate change aware people, the early movers are the ones who are interested in our system. But um, um, what, what we're seeing is essentially people perhaps screening a property before they uh, pursue that property for a purchase. So sometimes they're surprised um, because they find out it's in a flood zone or they might be um, concerned about whether the insurance is going to be affordable for that property going forward. So what we do is we basically tell them two things. One is what we project the insurance premium will be over the life of that property. And the other thing is whether we think that climate change will have any material impacts on the value of the property. Okay, so I would presume the kind of people who are very interested in your calculations would be someone who's buying a property on a beach, particularly a very flat beach, where the um, sea level uh, to the start of their property is not very much at all. Uh, is that the kind of person showing interest in your services? So interestingly, that would be the ones who would be probably most expecting that um, their property might be at risk from climate change. 
And uh, certainly if that property is also low lying, mm. then we'll tend to pick that up. But <clears throat> often people are surprised because um, proximity to the beach is actually not necessarily um, the most uh, significant in indicator of future flood. It's actually about elevation. And so what we see is a lot of suburbs where people are not facing the ocean, op uh, the open ocean, but they're very vulnerable to sea level rise, um, but don't know it. Hmm. So, um, you know, your classic examples would be parts of the Gold Coast, um, parts of the Sunshine Coast, um, northern beaches in uh, Sydney, obviously south of Perth. And um, also, you know, we see um, certain suburbs, relatively high value suburbs in um, in South Australia. So, you know, no, no one escapes attention on this one, but it's often not the ones that are most obvious that can get picked up. Yeah, I must admit, I always remember that when you look at um, uh, from Rose Bay to Bondi Beach, I was told there was a time when the water actually went through that area and that's where the golf course is, it's been built on sand and that was from a, obviously a time when the, the uh, sea level was a lot higher. But tell me this, Carl, if someone is living on Sydney Harbour, say in Rose Bay, a flat kind of area, how long do you think it will take before there is a really noticeable change in the water level? So the, the, the way this will occur, a lot of people, you know, sea levels are rising at like three millimetres a year, which doesn't have you stampeding away from the coast like a tsunami, okay? But um, the way this will manifest is actually around storm events, okay? So... So, you know, a lot of people joke about the, the idea that, you know, the water will be sitting at the bottom of the garden and I'll have a jetty. Yeah. But what it's actually we'll see is that the number of events which used to be um, very rare, like the 1950 floods or the 1970s floods, will become more frequent. And what you'll find is that properties uh, start to become um, um, well, one problem with this is they're not insured. So when events go through, you'll see a lot of damage and then uh, a lot of people scratching their heads, not realizing they weren't insured and um, and then um, rebuilding. But then when that happens two or three times, people start to question whether it's worth rebuilding. So it's the extreme events, which is where we'll see the problems. Yeah. And I, I guess if you go back in time, I'm sure you could give me the, the exact time, but there was a, a, a very bad storm period and properties around Collaroy in Sydney uh, really became quite precarious. That's what I guess you're, what you're talking about. So, so there you've got a, a, an example of an event with very severe erosion. Now, um, you, you imagine you're rebuilding that property. If you were rebuilding it as is, you're going to question whether when's the next event that's going to come along. Is that 100 years or is that five years? Because if it's five years, you're going to question whether it's worth spending the money. Mm. Now, that's why you're seeing a very, um, you know, a, a, a negotiations with council and state government about creating a defense along there, which protects those properties. The the more vexed question is, you know, what you see around that is is whether other taxpayers in the, or ratepayers are, are are interested in their rates being used to protect, you know, the million dollar properties on the, you know, just a, a handful of properties instead of the library or, you know, the community centre. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then the other thing you you'll start to see is is um, when you start to harden beaches, it, it can have knock-on effects. So that's why in um, Byron Bay, they'd be very reluctant to do it because they can say, well, we can protect these properties and lose our tourist industry. Yep, by creating um, significant um, coastal engineering projects. So, you know, what we see, I mean, flipping out a little bit to your earlier question of how quickly we'll see this, we're seeing the first signs of it around Australia now. But um, we expect that within the lifetime of current mortgages, this is going to be a very significant problem. A lot of properties being caught in this in this net um, and real questions about um, long term viability of certain suburbs. Is there a standout suburb around the country where the worry factor is so significant that insurance premiums have increased to increased what some people might think to extraordinary levels? Um, the problem with, so, so it depends on the hazard. So things like, um, well, with the, the recent bushfire um, events, we, you know, we've always thought that the premiums would have to move up, but not necessarily alarmingly, but move up because of climate change. With flooding, again, we've expected that things that previously didn't need flood cover will start to need flood cover. And that can be very expensive. So it's not, you know, we do see premiums north of $15,000 a year, which is very uh, expensive for some people. Um, and then the probably the bigger worry is things like coastal inundation, which you, you generally can't insure. Now, there's uh, at least one insurer that is, is claiming that they're now covering coastal inundation. But on the main part, a lot of consumers will not realize that they can't get insurance for that. A more general problem, actually, which, which is a, a little bit of a sleeping giant, is, um, is the problem of subsidence. So during droughts, for example, and we're, we're into our, you know, we had the millennium drought, and what is it, 10 years later, we're into a drought that's worse than the millennium drought. So millennium means a thousand years, so why are we having one 10 years later? A lot of people would say, well, that's, that's climate change. So um, what happens is that in clay soils, they dry out and the, the building starts to move and you get cracking in walls, potentially even foundations. So what, what, what we see there is a lot of homes that are potentially at risk of this. And again, it's uninsured. And we're starting to see that hit the news now where people are saying, hang on, my building's cracking. What can I do about it? And, um, and that's another thing that people really need to worry about with climate change. Okay, so if someone wants to actually check out the vulnerability of a property they currently own or one that they're thinking about buying, how do they go about it? So we provide a service on climatevaluation.com. Mm. Um, they can basically type in their address. Um, they type in uh, a few details about their property and they and then we'll provide them with a report that gives them details essentially about projected insurance premiums, um, projected um, any projected loss in value. And probably more interestingly, um, we're introducing a new system which will tell them which parts of their building are vulnerable and why. Hmm. And, and the reason that's useful is it, it starts to give people an idea of what they could do to make the property more resilient. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, a lot of what is rather than sort of saying, 
every building you know that's got too high a, a risk is is a write-off what we're seeing i think is the idea or what we're saying is that there's things that can be done and that can improve the um the re resilience improve the value and lower the future uh, cost of insurance yeah. and finally are the banks actually looking at postcodes and saying we won't lend to these postcodes um, look, we do know for sure that that's happening, um, that, for example, in the UK, we saw some very, um, what they called, the, you know, the, the postcode lottery on, on, on flood risk. Um, I would say, in, in fact, it's probably even more sophisticated than that now. So certainly we know that at least uh, two of the big majors have, have done mortgage screening at a suburb level, and we've been involved in that. Um, but I think this year we'll now see address level screening. So we're now introducing that service into the market. And um, um, as I say, we work in Australia and North America and, and also in Europe. And we're, you know, without giving too much away, we're seeing um, um, uh, some of our clients move to address level screening. And what that means is they're checking out specific properties and deciding whether they want to take on those, um, those, that, that business. Okay. Dr. Dr. Carl Mallon, thanks for joining us on the program. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. A lot of people don't think about this, but the changing of a place by government or private investment can have a very big impact on the value of a property. Think about places like Darling Harbour, the development along the, the river, the Yarra in Melbourne, all those sorts of things have big changes to the actual precinct, but also the residential and business properties in that particular precinct that I'm talking about. Richard Gibbs is the chief economist and a policy expert with a company called Urbis. Richard, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So, I know you've done a report on the value of place. I'm going to ask you in a moment what that is. But you come from a company called Urbis, U-R-B-I-S. What is that? Okay, Urbis had its origins basically with planners, town planners and, and designers. Mm. Uh, increasingly now Urbis is moving to a broader based professional services firm. Mm. Um, and that involves uh, analysis of public policy, obviously, and uh, social and economic impact analysis. Um, city shaping, of course, which mm. is what is, uh, Urbis is already famous for in many ways, yep. but also impacts on community. So uh, we're talking about economic and social infrastructure, of course. Um, so yes, from humble beginnings, I guess, as town planners, mm. um, developing into um, you know, a, a large and growing entity in terms of that. So staff are now approaching 750 people uh, with uh, presence in Asia now and mm. um, a growing presence in Singapore. Mm. Uh, where I was. Is it a private company? It's a private company. It's actually owned, the, um, the shareholders are actually partners mm. in the firm. So, and it's a bit like an accounting model. It's it? a bit like an accounting model and you have to be working in the company mm. to actually be a partner and to be a shareholder. There's so some very interesting meetings at times. I Indeed. <laughs> Professionals are always a little bit tricky when it comes to leading in certain directions, but still, the company's done well. Mm. Now tell us, now the value of place, mm. 
Explain to my viewers what place is first and then we'll look at the value of place. Well, place is a location and it can be any location. We're not just talking about the public realm, if you like, or public spaces. We're talking about commercial, residential, uh, neighbourhoods, um, even industrial and, and commercial areas mm. and precincts, uh, parks and gardens. Mm. Um, it really is a location that has uh, an identity. Um, it has an attraction um, and that's what you look for um, and it has you know, features in terms of community or, or business interaction, connectivity uh, with people and the built environment. Yeah, you know, I know you're as pathetic as I am, you're an economist and I'm an economist. In, in, in the bottom line is place has an economic value, doesn't it? It does, and it has an increasing economic value yeah. because people are now, and uh, look, if we use the recent uh, ongoing bushfire mm. uh, crisis that we're faced with here, um, that I think has really brought it home, mm. that there is a value in place, there's a value in community, mm. and there's a real economic value. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when that's damaged or destroyed, mm. uh, we really feel that. Yeah. Well, I must admit, as a young boy, I was brought up in the Paddington area, and Paddington was a pretty impoverished place in those days. And, and, it, and we used to spend our holidays when wealthier people went to the snowfields or to um, America for skiing or whatever, <laughs> Europe. We went to Centennial Park and played footy in the park. Mm. Um, but today, that park is so valuable, it has affected all the land values all the way around Absolutely. it. And also, the, the, the development of Sydney Park what it's done to that industrial area around Newtowns and Peters mm. and whatever, it's an extraordinary implication that kind of thing has. So what did the report that you guys put out, it was called the value of, of place, is that right? Uh, yeah, shaping uh, places for people. Yeah, okay. What, what was the point of the exercise? point of the exercise was to say that for decades now we've probably used a very partial analysis approach mm. and economists love to separate partial from general equilibrium mm. and the like and we haven't used a holistic approach to valuing place and we haven't recognised as a result of that we haven't recognised the full value mm. of place and we haven't understood um, I think sufficiently enough the connection between social value and community value and that translation to commercial economic and commercial value uh, we've tended to have a focus on commercial value as you yeah. know you know yeah. what is the yield on a on a property yeah. uh, what is the yield on that land yeah. you know and what is the the unimproved capital value and the like yeah. um, so this is an attempt really to say we need to take a holistic approach we need to identify those different segments of value that are there yeah. and we need to really unlock that value is there is there a pressure on both government public sector and private sector to put more investment into place. And what, what I'm even asked that question, I, I recall Barry Unsworth, when he was Premier of New South Wales, was pilloried for suggesting that Darling Harbour one day might be, I think they're in the, the, the Paris. So, that's right, the Paris. That's on the hemisphere. And of course, it hasn't quite got to those heights, but it is an unbelievably popular yeah. precinct for people and the businesses, and even like the Commonwealth Bank is now on that, that precinct. You would never have imagined that before that innovation and that investment in the area actually proceeded. Well, you know, Peter, as well as I do, we've had a luxury in Australia because we've had a lot of space. Mm. And I think as a result of that, we probably undervalued mm. um, the importance of, of place and space in terms of that economic and social value translating through the commercial. Yeah. And now as we see people increasingly, really I suppose through preference and choice, 
wanting to live in areas and work in areas that are well connected, that are interactive, that are safe and secure, uh, where there's uh, not just uh, work activities but leisure activities and social uh, and community spirit, um, that value has increased and the importance of that uh, for everybody, governments, developers, mm. you know, individuals and businesses. Mm. And um, increasingly, and if we look at Barangaroo, um, I think the Barangaroo headland, mm. Um, you know, has enormous value segments in it. Of course, the heritage and cultural value alone. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking about the people who own the terraces in, in the rocks area, how their values have gone up. Mm. And in many ways, because this is a property show, what you're really underlining is to, to people who either want to buy a house that they'll live in and one day make them rich and they can retire with the benefits of, of, a, of a valuable property or a property investor. When you know there's money going into a place, it's likely that the residential properties around it will increase in value over time. Absolutely, and uh, as you know, we used to give advice that said that if you're a property investor, taking the residential space, uh, don't look to buy something that you, where you would want to necessarily live, but think about your tenants. Mm. Increasingly now we're seeing a coalescence of those preferences mm. between tenants and owner-occupiers, mm. and it's because of that value of place mm. and because of that, um, I suppose, increased desire and demand for connectivity, for good social amenity yeah. um, and for the economic and social infrastructure to be there, mm. um, that those interests have basically coalesced. Mm. And so I now increasingly say to people, if you're buying something as an investment property, make sure it's a good place mm. and it's a place that you would probably want to actually reside yeah, in. Yeah, well, that is something I say. And, and some investment property experts say, don't do that. But I know I've said to people over the years, uh, financial planning clients, for example, who were paying a lot of tax and they wanted to buy an investment property, I said, well, you live in a very big property. When your kids all go, you may well want to downsize. And the place that you're going to rent out and get tax deductions over, say, a 10 or 15 year period, could be the place that you then downsize to. And a lot of people saw That's that right. as, a, as, a, as a fairly useful strategy. It's a very useful strategy and if you think of where the, the pressure is at the moment in relation to supply and demand, it's really in what we call, in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, that inner circle mm. and it's that medium density, more prestige residential development. And mm. um, we're seeing in Melbourne in particular some really chronic pressures there. Mm. And so when people say they're going to downsize, uh, it's not necessarily to a, a cheaper um, right. a property in that yeah. sense because you're looking at uh, land constrained issues in relation to that. I mean, by definition, all of those developments are brownfield developments um, or redevelopments of, of existing sites or aggregation of sites. Um, and so uh, you have all of that, um, that pressure in terms of the land value as well, but then what goes with that is usually a comprehensive placemaking strategy. And we've got a couple at the moment we're working on in Melbourne, for example. Um, in the, um, the Fitzroy area where that's, the, that's a really important point and these are going to be prestige, you know, very much premium properties in the medium density category. Mm. And, and what it's going to do obviously is tap into those natural place benefits. And, and let's say Fitzroy, Collingwood and all those sort of areas, people love the, the uber cool life around it. That's right. And now uh, um, I guess town planners and developers are going to start creating properties to satisfy them. They are, and uh, that's that's come to the fore with the work we did on the uh, the Waterloo Metro precinct as mm. well. I mean, th this wasn't just a case of taking a former public housing estate and putting a new metro station in the middle of it. It mm. was saying 
what will that metro station do to activate yeah. that precinct and actually to bring it to life and to maximise those uh, the value of place? So, Richard, if, if people want to read that report, is it easily accessible? It's easily accessible. It's available online, mm -hmm. um, shaping places for people, mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, it's and not Google a long Google Urbis at the same time. Google Urbis at the same time, um, and if you're in Asia, it's history, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've in terms of history, in terms of placemaking, we've just completed the Orchard Road. Um, re, uh, revisioning and redesign uh, for the Urban Redevelopment Authority there and uh, that's a name, again a, um, a case in point that this is also a dynamic is what I'm saying. It's not a set and forget mm. so it's not sort of a, a formulate that we would impose over something and say okay tick all those boxes and away you go. Mm. It's something that you need to review and you need to work with the community and business mm. obviously to keep that vibrancy there. Sounds as though you've got a more interesting life working for Urbis than it was working for a, a bank. <laughs> well, I get, to, I get to help create things now and I get to actually speak more to the people out there and, yeah. and, and get around. And one thing I did always do at Macquarie, which I still do, and I get to, uh, to walk the pavements and the footpaths, as I always said to you, and that's the best uh, indicator you can get, really, to get out there and see what's the happening. The real world. The real world. Okay. Thanks, Thanks. Richard Gibbs from Urbis. That's the program for tonight. If you like this program, make sure you press the like button and sign up to become a subscriber. Uh, it goes out, as we say, on our, our Switzer Financial Group uh, YouTube channel, and you can get that each week. We go out on Thursday nights.